Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest really needs no introduction, but I will do it anyway. Dr. Peter McIntyre, renowned professor of psychology at Cape Breton University in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Canada. Dr. McIntyre, it is quite a pleasure and honor to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Your time zone is... I think this is the first time I've ever talked to someone in this time zone before. I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a myth. I didn't think this this time zone existed. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if you think this one's strange, our, our neighbor Newfoundland has a half hour time zone. They're a half hour apart from us, so I think that's the only half hour time zone in the world. Oh, so that's a half an hour east of you. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, in television in Canada, it's it's nine o'clock, nine thirty Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> it's. A, you know, they do things their own way. God bless them. Do you ever have uh, trouble linking up with people? I mean, yesterday, you and I were both correct, uh, but we were kind of chatting on Skype. And then we kind of we kind of had that moment that, wait, what, what's going on? Was this the time? Was that the, does that does that happen because of your time zone with people often? Because yeah, I'm sure you talk to people around the world. Occasionally it does. We had a, a talk just in December there and uh the person we were talking to was in, in Australia, and it was a day later than it is here. And we really had to concentrate to be sure we were all meeting at the same time and day. How long have you been at Cape Breton in Sydney, Nova Scotia? I grew up here. This is this is my hometown. So uh, really? I've come back home. Have you Have you taught at other universities as well? Or because on your bio, it seems most of the uh, publications are re- related to Cape Breton University. Yeah, I um, I did my undergraduate here. It was called the the University College of Cape Breton at the time. Okay, and uh, went off to Western uh, for my MA and PhD, and then a two year postdoc at University of Ottawa. And then uh, just as I was finishing up there, a job opened up here, and uh, I managed to come back home. Was that your Was that your plan? Were you Were you pleased how that that worked out, or were you looking to sort of go out west to Vancouver or Oh, Edmonton. no, I was absolutely thrilled to be able to come back uh, to the east coast of Canada. There, there's something, I think there's something like 50, 53 universities in Canada that, you know, are, are full-fledged universities. And so there's not a lot of opportunity. You kind of have to go where the job openings are. So at the time, in the, you know, mid-90s, it was a really tight job market. So to land a job on the east coast was really my goal. And then to come right back to my hometown, literally the same street I grew up on. It's, uh, yeah, it was a real blessing. I, we moved in right next door to my parents and wow, <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Have you ever got offers? I mean, I'm sure you have. I'll, I, I just have to, I don't want to, this is kind of a weird thing to say. I don't know if you're going to be offended, but you're, you've been, you've been at this about four decades now. Uh, oh God, now so, I feel old. Thanks. D- d- during, <laughs> I mean, during that time, were you ever tempted to go, uh, I, I just have to imagine with your quality of, of output and work that you were offered other gigs in other places in Canada or other places around the world. Did, were you ever tempted to, to go somewhere else or was it always, you know, I'll just, no, I'll stay here? Uh, no, never, never went looking, never asked, never offered. No, just, uh, this is home. Wow. That is cool. I've never been to Nova Scotia. What, 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 oh, we should come. What, 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 what is it? Is it the people? Is it, is it the food? Is it the scenery? It's all of that. It's, it's the way of thinking. It's the way of interacting. It's, it's the, uh, the lifestyle. It's the, you know, it's, it's island time. We, we live on a rock in the North Atlantic. So there's a certain way of doing things here that gets you through the winter. 
Do you do most of your writing in the winter? No, it's actually done mostly in the summer. Really? Teach, teaching is in the fall, winter, and then uh, summertime is when we have. I don't have any teaching scheduled in this from you know late April till early September, and that's when I get my writing done. Do you go somewhere else to do your writing, or you you do it at home? Oh no, I can't imagine why anyone would go anywhere else. Uh, you know, it was funny when I was flying home to do the job interview at Cape Breton. Uh, I picked up the in-flight magazine mm-hmm. on Air Canada, and there was an article there by a, an author named Silver Donald Cameron, and he's a he's a Nova Scotia native. And uh, I remember the article concluded with a phrase something like, "I know that perfectly intelligent people live elsewhere, but I don't know why." <laughs> <laughs> and then after I, I started working, Silver Donald Cameron became a dean at our at our university. So I got to meet him, and uh, he did, he actually just passed away recently. He's a very 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 nice man, fantastic I, author. So you you must have fostered incredible work relationships and friendships over over these these, these decades, being at your hometown and being at the the, the same university. Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, my neighborhood here, I mean, we still live on the street that I grew up on. So, uh, you know, I can, I, I know my neighbors, I know the people across the street They're, you know, my friends are still here. Um, yeah, I, most of my, most of my friends uh, are not academics. And then I go to work and I have a whole different circle of friends who are academics. So it's the best of both worlds. So when you went to pursue your, your master's, were you aware of Gardner? And that's why you chose to study there? Well, it's a it's a bit of an interesting story. Well, maybe it's it's interesting to me anyway. Um, when I when I was leaving high school, going to u- university, uh, I, I went for course advising, academic advising, and I, I was assigned to a professor of speech communication. Hmm. And I hadn't really heard of that discipline before. And it's you know it's big in the U.S. Uh, I don't know if it's really popular many other places in the world, but it was very popular in the U.S. and and there was a department of speech communication at Cape Breton. Hmm. And so I, I met this professor and she was so enthusiastic and she talked about how psychology, which is what I was interested in, how psychology uh, related to communication. And she was talking about public speaking anxiety and she was talking about interpersonal relationships depending on communication. And she just convinced me that this was something that I had to do. And so I signed up for my undergraduate degree with a joint major in psychology and speech communication. And uh, so then, you know, as I was graduating, um, this professor, her name was Judy Rolls. She um, she was doing research on public speaking anxiety, mm. and her her question, she had some data on pre post data taking a communication course. Does it reduce anxiety? And so I had, as part of my undergraduate thesis, offered to analyze that data. And so we we worked together, and it turned out uh, the data were compelling that taking a communication course reduced public speaking anxiety by quite a bit, hmm. not taking a course, there was no change. So it was, you know, the nice shaped interaction that psychologists seem to love. And so as I was finishing up, I was looking for graduate opportunities. And, and you know, one of the things I was looking for was something related to interpersonal relationships, uh, communication. And I, I was, you know, surveying, you know, places to apply. And I found Gardner's information. And I had never thought of second language as an application of that but then um, the possibilities seemed almost endless because second language, you can be, you know, your very first day having zero words mm. or be a fluent bilingual. And so with the range of communication possibilities, it just seemed like, you know, the door was wide open to investigating so many 
interesting things with second language. And it turned out to be even more interesting than I had imagined at the time. Wow. So right place at the right time. Exactly. That's the story of my life. It just, that happens all the time. Because to, for you to meet up with Gardner, if that's just an accident, it's, it's almost hard to comprehend when I'm thinking about it now, as far as the imprint that, that both of you had together in, in, in your own right uh, on this field. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine reading the literature without seeing your names next to each other, is what I'm saying. It's almost difficult for me to imagine my my career without him. Um, he's been so influential on on how I you know how I think, the research that we do. Um, yeah, it's it's I, I, maybe you know I'm sure another path would have worked out in a different way. But yeah, I'm I'm very happy that I've I've been on this path. So when did you decide you wanted to focus on language learning anxiety as as sort of your main focus yeah it was it was actually day one um i met with with bob gardner and um we were talking about you know projects that we might be interested in doing and one of the things that that um bob i'll call him bob because that's that's what i called him you know awesome uh, <laughs> uh yeah one of the things that bob really emphasized was getting as much research experience as you could as early as you could hmm. So we were talking about, you know, my experience, the literature that I had some exposure to, and he hadn't seen the literature on public speaking anxiety or, you know, the, the speech communication literature. And so he was thinking, wow, I've got some data here. And I remember him pulling data off the top shelf of his bookcase saying, you know, we've got this project here and we, there's no one really writing it up right now. You can, you can take this data if you want to and write it up. Uh, and it was a, the question that he had addressed in that data was, you know, do general communication measures correlate with, with language learning, or does it have to be a, a French class or French use anxiety that correlates with learning French? Mm. And so that was great. It's like, yeah, this is, this is right up my alley. I, this is a new dimension for second language, but I kind of know about the, the communication anxiety literature. So yeah, let's have at it. And so we did that. Uh, and that, that went well. That became my first publication. And then we just quickly did a second study. And after we finished that second study, which had many more anxiety measures in it, I said to Bob, um, you know, that was kind of like, you know, that went really fast. Maybe what if we just called that my master's thesis? Mm -hmm. And he thought, oh, that's kind of, that's a little bit out of shape. That's not how things are done. Um, but he, he checked with a couple of people and they said, well, you know, we haven't had a proposal meeting. But, you know, if you're willing to defend the work without a proposal and advice that comes from it, we'll give it a try. So we, we did that. Uh, and then that went fairly well and then just rolled right into my PhD program and continued the work from there. What did you do for your PhD? Well, the idea was to look at, at language anxiety from a stages of processing perspective. Mm -hmm. So what we really wanted to look at was how does anxiety affect cognitive processing? particularly uh, for language. So we devised a number of different tasks uh, that would require uh, taking in language input or try to isolate processing where we tried to connect, in our case, English and French words together, uh, and then output, you know, the idea of forming sentences and communicating meaning. And so we tried in my thesis to argue that anxiety can affect all three of those um, processes, the input, processing, and output, stages of language learning. 
And so we produced a couple of papers from that perspective. I mean, one of your most cited papers, The Subtle Effects of Language Anxiety on Cognitive Processing in the Second Language, published in 1994. Now, was this coinciding with the end of your PhD around that time? Yeah, that was that was one of my, my PhD studies. I see. I, I think anyone that's studying language learning anxiety, that that you you'd, you'd definitely have to read that paper. Um, it seems like your citations are, are increasing since 2014. I'm just looking on Google Google Scholar here. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Um, you know, uh, I think the publishing world has changed, and um, the idea of of sites like ResearchGate or Academia Edu, those kind of sites have really helped popularize a lot of papers that might have just kind of gotten lost. Uh, you know, I remember when I first started back in you know '86, it was like you'd have to go to the library, go up to the dusty shelves at the top of the the, the book uh, to the library and and dig out the old issues of the journals to try to find anything and hand search the table of contents. And I can remember doing that early on uh, when I was trying to find the literature. And now it's uh, you know PDF to the desktop and it's just so much more efficient. So I think a lot of these older studies that might have gotten forgotten, they now get picked up in keyword searches and you know the scholarship endures for longer than it might have otherwise. So language lear- uh, language learning, that is the journal based out of University of Michigan? Yes. And then uh, you also published in language teaching in uh, where one, one of your great articles, a student's contributions to second language learning. That was, a, I think it was two parts. Um, yes. Uh, that was in language teaching. Where, where is that journal located? I'm not familiar with that one. That one, I, I I can't really tell you exactly where that's located. I, I don't know. And then your other one is the Modern Language uh, Journal, where there was a lot of publications in the 90s, and you had the back and forth with uh, Sparks and uh, Ganshaw. I, I guess I, I like to ask this question to everybody. Back then or even now, what's your processes as far as when you're writing a paper or finishing the paper? How do you go about targeting a particular journal or choosing a journal for publication or for submission? Um, yeah, that, that's that's a very good question. It's kind of changed over the years. Um, early on, the first thing I would do is go through the the reference list the, that that we had mm-hmm. and see which journal was cited most often in the reference list. Uh. Because if you're borrowing the literature from that journal, then it must be interested in the topic of your study. Mm. So that was that was the first clue. And then as you get to know the journals, um, you know, and then if you kind of or if you're around long enough, then you get to know the editors and you know, you know, what studies, you know, modern language journal might prefer, what studies a foreign language annals might like, what studies a, you know, multicultural journal might like. Something. So there, you kind of get to know the, the ethos of each of the journals over time. But early on, it's definitely looking at your own reference list and seeing which journal you're citing uh, for the argument you're trying to make. Hmm. When you were growing up in Nova Scotia, were you required to take French? Yes. Yeah, if, required, and I, I took it voluntarily as well. Because I was kind of making the argument in, in my own writing that one of the reasons why so much literature has come from you from you, and from Horowitz is just the connection with uh, language learners. So the L1 French learners, L2 French learners, or Horowitz with the L1 Spanish learners, L2 Spanish learners. And I'm kind of making the argument that, well, maybe there there could be some other pockets around the globe that I'm, I'm sure they are emerging as hotspots. 
is that is that one of the besides the you know the great luck of of you meeting Gardner and that great relationship do you think that's one of the reasons why so much literature has come out of those those two those two places yeah absolutely um in Canada the the relationship between English and French Canadians um you know it, it's pretty good right now but it's not always pretty good and you know the political process waxes and wanes in terms of conflict mm-hmm. and so during the 1960s uh there was quite a bit of conflict about uh, the relationship between English-speaking and French-speaking Canadians. And, um, you know, I think the French-speaking community was worried that in this sea of English that's all around them, you know, the United States to the south and, you know, the rest of Canada, that, you know, French was in danger of being lost. Um, You know, right now there are 7 million people who speak French in Canada, so it's pretty safe. Mm -hmm. But at the time, uh, the relationship between English and French-speaking Canadians was politically, you know, quite tense. And so that tends to generate research, like how can we improve ethnic relations? How can we improve language learning? How can we get two groups to get along better? And so some of the programs like French Immersion uh, came out of that sort of research emphasis on, you know, how do we make the political and social situation a little bit better? And I'm sure it's happening in the southern U.S. where Elaine Horowitz is, you know, the the relationship between Spanish-speaking and English-speaking people in the U.S., again, sometimes can be a little bit conflict-oriented. And so one of the natural inclinations of researchers is to try to make the situation better and find out what's going on. So, yeah, I think think some of these language conflicts do produce the need for research to understand them and how to improve them. Because I think there's a similarity between the dynamics of French Canadians and English uh, speakers and Japanese in, in some ways as far as compulsory English. I think there's some pushback for some Japanese people. They're not really interested, and it, and almost more so as um, getting into this decade, uh, almost Japan's becoming more isolationists. And and there's there is kind of and I remember having that feeling when I first went to Quebec. You know, you you drive up north to New York, and then you go to Montreal, and you know you can pretty much speak English. But then I studied at um, a brass academy, and it was called Domaine Forge. Maybe you've heard of it, um, north of Quebec City. And, oh, okay. Right. And and nobody uh, on the St. Lawrence River, and nobody spoke English. And it was crazy because I had never traveled um, outside of North America before. And I thought, this is great. This is great. I, w- I was excited about it. Like no one, no one was speaking English and all the signs were in French. And yeah. it was a really, really cool experience. Um, so, I mean, it, as a culturally, it was a cool thing. But I remember meeting people who had a sort of an aversion to speaking French, uh, speaking English. And they would say, look, if you want to speak English, just go to Montreal. It was sort of that, that sort of, that sort of dynamic that I was. Right. <laughs> that I yeah. Would, and there uh, are people, people in that, you know, in that area who grow up and they just don't speak English, that their, their whole life has lived in French. Um, and then there are other folks who, who could speak English, but because they want to make sure that the French language survives, they know they have to use it. And in order to use it, you have to make the people you're speaking to use it as well. And so there's a, you know, there's a political, you know, small p political reason for insisting that people interact in French, because that is how you maintain the, the vitality of the language. Mm-hmm. It has to be used for real purposes. Otherwise, it fades away. Mm. All right. So let's let's jump into the paper. So today's paper is a chapter 
in in a book uh, from 2017, and the book is called "New uh, New Insights into Language Anxiety Theory, Research, and Educational Implications." And the editors were Christina Gonneau, Mark Dalbney, and Jean Marc Debade. Um, Christina, people that are listening to this episode now, there by the time this comes out, I think there will be episodes with Christina Gonneau and Jean Marc Debade. If people would like to to hear more. Um, I'm actually really happy you wrote this, uh, for, for a few reasons. It, it helped me because I, I was reading all of your articles individually going back from the nineties all the way through today. And this was a nice chapter that sort of brought everything together in a nice story. The other, the other reason that I, I liked this paper is in my thesis, I was making an argument that, <laughs> that as far as I know, I was the first person to try to correlate heart rate with, uh, with self-reports. And then I read, I was like, oh, well, I can't do that because there, because then you talked about your article from 2014. So I'm kind of glad that I saw that um, because if I didn't, I think the reason that I, 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 I thought I was one of the only people doing it is because, um, again, we talked about, you know, the, the, the search words, right? And so that, right. Or, that article's name... Uh, was the motion of emotion idiodynamic case studies of learners' foreign language anxiety. And I guess if heart rate was in that title, it would have been easier for me to find. So I'm really I'm really glad you did mention it in this chapter. I guess before we get into the chapter, why didn't you include heart rate in the in your two, 2014 article with uh, Gregerson? Well, I don't I don't think we sat down to exclude it. It, it just it wasn't a topic that came up. Um, as we were trying to name it. And I think part of that was because of where we were trying to send it. Mm. Um, you know, language learners, language teachers, curriculum designers, the people who read Modern Language Journal, um, they they probably would not be as interested in heart rate as they would be in, you know, this sort of new, the novelty of the dynamic approach and, and maybe how anxiety affects learners individually. Mm. So we just we just thought that that was the most compelling thing to emphasize in the title. You know, that's, that's really interesting because in this chapter, you, you talk about, you know, Scoville from 1978, how he highlighted the, the many things that, that researchers need to, to think about, including uh, physiological measurements and these things. This is an idea that goes back a long way. I would say from, from my perspective now as someone who's publishing, going to publish in this decade, I'm going to make a concerted effort to try to include those terms in my journal articles, like physiological measurements, heart rate response, these sorts of things. I want people to, maybe I don't know which journal to send to at this point, but it's actually kind of interesting. Do you see that? I mean, we can get into the the state, the, the three sections of the paper, but is that kind of what you mean by the dynamic approach where people are, are moving more towards using these key terms in their research or even in the titles of their journal articles? Yeah, I think that I think that's part of it. Certainly, is part of it. Um, and with anxiety research, you know, the the physiological components of anxiety become very noticeable at high levels. So you know, you know when you're you know keyed up, you know when you're anxious, and you know you know your palms get sweaty, your heart begins to race, you feel your face get flushed, mm-hmm. um, you know, you feel butterflies in your stomach. So there's all these physiological changes that are reliably associated with anxiety arousal. And so the physiological side of it just comes quite naturally to mind um, in ways that it might not come with other language-related processes like willingness to communicate or enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not that physiological side that's so prominent and noticeable. So with anxiety research, for sure, 
there is a physiological connection and, you know, certainly worth worth looking at. Um, but I think one of the questions that a lot of these journals ask for their authors is, you know, what are the pedagogical implications for this? Mm. And, you know, that's pretty much a standard part that you're asked to put into every every paper. And it's difficult to think of what the pedagogical implications are. What should a teacher do about heart rate? Mm. It's like, well, okay, that's a bit bit outside my area. But if you tell me what I can do about constructing activities, or what can I do about, you know, putting students at ease, or, or how can I structure a writing class so students have time to edit their own work before they turn it in, those kind of things a teacher has control over. So when you look at pedagogical implications, it's easier to, to look in that area than in the physiological area. Did you ever think about, because you said in the, before you you went uh, and studied with, with Gardner, you were talking about communication, uh, and you were talking about speech anxiety. Did you ever think about branching out to performance anxiety or 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 publishing in a in psychology journals where you you don't need that you don't need to include the pedagogical implications? Um, yes, the the short answer is yes. But our, our second area is not psychology so much as communication journals. Hmm. Uh, we we published several papers in in communication journals where we look at things like that. Um, and so we've done studies on, you know, anxiety and willingness to communicate in, in second language. And we've also done them in native language and published those in communication journals as well. So it's, yeah, that, that, that cross-fertilization across disciplines does happen among psychology, communication, and, you know, the second language acquisition area. Did you ever feel limited? What, kind of what you just said, I, I, the point you made is a great one. Did, did you ever feel limited by maybe you, you have an idea about, how this relates to psychology, but then you say, well, I don't know how I can, I can think about the pedagogical implication. Did that ever, did that, did that ever make you frustrated or did that, were you always excited for that challenge or did you feel limited by that at times, depending on the research no. you were doing? Yeah, not limited at all. Quite the opposite. Um, because you you can look at your, your paper and what your, what your best results are, what the strongest results are, what's the meaning of this study. Uh, and then you can say, well, this is this really has more psychology than than communication. So, uh, you know, the physiological stuff would be very much welcome in a psychology journal, mm. maybe a little bit less welcome in a communication journal, and maybe even a little less than that in a second language journal. So you think, okay, if I'm emphasizing in my write up the the physiological side of this, I'm heading to, you know, this other domain where it's going to be a little bit more consistent with how they typically publish. Mm. So yeah, quite liberating. In fact, rather than constraining, it's like I have three options. Which one do I emphasize? You seem like a much healthier person than me. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I need to move to Nova Scotia. Open up my mind here. Um, I don't know. My doctor says I'm interesting. So I, I don't think that's. <laughs> <laughs> I like that's a good term. You can use that for yeah. many different things. All right. So you break the, the the chapter up into three parts. So again, this is an overview of language anxiety research and trends in its development. And no one would know more about this than you. Uh, the three parts in the chapter you, you label confounded approach, specialized approach, and the dynamic approach. I guess you started to enter the field towards the... Interesting. I'm just kind of thinking about it now because you were late '80s, early '90s, so the FLCAS has already been out there. You're kind of if we're if we're talking about uh, classical music, you're kind of like somewhere a little bit between 
closer to Beethoven than Mozart, you're moving towards the specialized approach, right? But you're, I guess is it's hard it's hard to know with the the publication lags, right? What, growing when you started out, would you say you were closer to the specialized approach or to the confounded approach? Oh, that's uh, you're you're really asking a good question there. Um, if if you don't mind, let me tell you the story, and you can Please. sort out you know where where it goes from there. Sure. So. I showed up at, at Western in the fall of 86. That's when I started my, my master's program. And that's right around the time that, that Horowitz was publishing the, the scale, the, the foreign language classroom anxiety scale. Um, but that wasn't the first paper I read. The first paper I, re- I read was Scoville. That was my very first paper that I read in order to contribute to my master's research. Mm. That was paper number one. And I read it and, and you know, Scoville in writing it seemed to be struggling with, with how do we interpret these anxiety studies. There weren't very many at the time. Um, and one of his own students was Kleinman and it produced these positive correlations in some samples and negative correlations in others. And, um, you know, so they were really struggling with, you know, how do we interpret this, this area? So it's like, oh, wow. Okay. There's, there's a controversy here. And then at the same time, Gardner is pulling that data off the top shelf of the bookcase saying, you know, we've got this French class and French speaking French use anxiety scales in our studies, and they correlate reliably. Mm-hmm. You know, every study they've ever done in the socioeducational model, if anxiety is in there, it is a strong and negative correlate of language achievement almost any way you measure it, mm-hmm. uh, anywhere in the country. So um, it's like, okay, they've got these very consistent correlations on this side. Scoville is saying that there's a lot of inconsistency on that side. Horowitz comes out with a paper that says, here's a 33-item classroom anxiety scale, and we think this is a unique configuration of anxiety, that it's partly to do with testing, partly to do with communication, partly to do with negative interpersonal evaluation, um, but really the language component differentiates it. That makes this different in people's experience. And I don't know if, if listeners would know this, but, but Horowitz cites Gardner for that idea. The idea that there's a specialized type of anxiety, because Gardner had been using French classroom and French use anxiety in studies for many years, and of course they knew each other's work. And so when Horowitz developed the the FLCAS, it was, you know, in part based on the ideas from Gardner's work. So this was right in you know right in our wheelhouse. This was exactly where we wanted to to be, and so we started saying. Well, what if we designed a study where we had measures of test anxiety, measures of communication anxiety, general anxiety, but then language-specific anxiety, specific to the language that the students were taking? Hmm. You know, which which would correlate best? It seemed, you know, pretty likely that the French anxiety would correlate best with French learning, and that was the study, and that's how it turned out. So, in that way, it was kind of at the beginning of the specialized approach, but it hadn't solidified yet. Hmm. And I think, you know, the data, the, the, the data in the studies that, that you had mentioned earlier from the late 80s, early 90s, um, they helped really establish the idea that, yeah, this this idea of language anxiety is powerful, that that it's it is kind of special. And, you know, maybe you have anxiety in other areas, but when it comes to language, it's it's easy for you. Or it could be the opposite. It could be, you know, you don't really have anxiety about communication, but but good God, don't ask me to speak my second language because that just... There's just too much complexity to it. It's too it's too hard for me. Um, and Gardner would, would tell me stories about, you know, living in, in Montreal. He did his graduate work in Montreal. Um, and, you know, these world-renowned professors at McGill University would be English speakers because that's the language at, at McGill, uh, but embedded in the Francophone area of Montreal. 
And they would say, oh, I can't learn French. It's just beyond me. These are mm. world-class academics who say they can't learn French. It didn't make any sense. When the kids on the street were fluent in both languages and, and people with you know brain injuries were fluent in two languages, it just didn't make any sense that these really good academics didn't have the capability of learning. And what Gardner and Lambert thought about was, well, maybe they just have a bad attitude. Mm. You know, maybe they just don't like French-speaking people, that kind of thing. And so that's where you know the whole idea of attitudes and motivation really began with that idea that, you know, how you feel, how you think, your attitudes, all of that really matters to the language learning experience. And so as we looked at the language anxiety literature, we took a lesson from that. And we said, well, maybe maybe this is really to do with, you know, something special about that, the language that you're learning. And that, that however it comes together, it creates an anxiety that somehow is not reliably correlated with the other types of anxieties you might feel. Were you thinking about identity? as well yeah it all it all features in the in the mix somewhere um especially in areas where the languages are being used i think if this was you talked about um you know english speaking in japan earlier i think if it if it's just a course in school and you know kind of like chemistry you know if, if i show up for grade seven chemistry and i'm never going to use it what am i going to do with it i don't really it's not part of my identity then it's just another subject to memorize but if you're an English speaker living in Montreal, or if you're a you know a Gaelic speaker living in rural Cape Breton here, if you're a you know the language matters. It really matters because it may be the language of of your ancestors. It's the language of your community. It's a language you want to keep. And when that gets connected to identity, yeah, I think language does separate itself from other subjects you might learn. Well, so that was the beginning of the specialized approach. So we're kind of making the tr the transition from the confounded approach where it's like, hey, here's a manifest anxiety scale. Let's see if it correlates. Here's a test anxiety scale. Let's see if that correlates. Here's communication apprehension. Let's see if that correlates to say, no, no, let, let's put these things together and say, right, let's ask about language and anxiety and see if that correlates with language achievement. And that's what my thesis was about. Well, let's, let's, let's look at that Horowitz paper and then go back a step to Tobias 1985 because in the Horowitz paper 1986 she writes that the components of language learning anxiety as you mentioned com communication apprehension test anxiety fear of negative evaluation she lists three uh, main main and then you have Tobias in in 1985 who's talking about test anxiety interference and interference retrieval and then it seems like from Horowitz and then you have Young in 1991 and then through the 90s Everyone is saying that that test anxiety is a component of language learning anxiety. And recently, I, I was doing some research about test anxiety in Japan um, because there's this you know high stakes exam, and you, you, there, there's papers written about how you know your whole career is affected by it. Some some people you know study for an entire year when they're 18 years old to get into the college of their choice. It's just a huge high stakes. So I'm, I'm actually interested in researching that more as well. And as, and as, as I was focusing on test anxiety, I saw this sort of Venn diagram keep happening where, where, you know, language learning anxiety researchers are saying, no, no, test anxiety is ours. And then test anxiety researchers are saying, no, no, this is a separate thing altogether. Um, so what, what's your view on that? Because that is kind of confounding. Test anxiety was kind of just put inside of language learning anxiety. And maybe that's okay for language learning anxiety researchers. But what, what do you say to like a test anxiety researcher who says, no, this is completely different? Um, do, does that, is that question confusing? Am I, am I being confounding? 
I, I, yeah, I don't look at it quite the same the same way. So yeah, maybe maybe this is definitely something we should talk about. Um, so Horowitz, it, okay, let me take a step back. The the citation that we're discussing today from the 2017 book, Horowitz also writes in that same book, her own chapter, where she laments the idea that some people take her idea of of language anxiety and say, right, if you add communication plus test plus fear of negative evaluation, that's when you get language anxiety. So it's like X equals, you know, Y plus Z plus A, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And she says, that's not what I meant. And she very forcefully says that in her own chapter in that book. And so, I, you know, I'm very much in line with her thinking on that. She was actually the external advisor on my PhD. Wow. So, um, yeah, she, uh, she's been an important part of, of my thinking over the years. And so she was talking about how the whole is more than the sum of its parts. And so when you look at language anxiety, it may have, for a particular learner, a strong contribution from testing because they're in the Japanese system mm -hmm. where, you know, everything seems like a test. You're constantly being tested and the test is on your mind. But if you're a, a kid trying to sell newspapers in Montreal and, you know, an English speaker walks up or a French speaker walks up, you're not being tested. You're just trying to sell your newspaper. So it's a whole different, you know, setting in there. You know, your, your concerns are very different than they would be in a high stakes testing environment, which, again, might be very different from a case where language is just, you know, an option. And maybe some people think, hey, this would be an easy credit. So the reason why you're learning and how you're learning plays a role in constructing anxiety in the first place. So if the emphasis in the environment is on testing, then it would make sense that test anxiety is related. But if it's not, it would make sense it's not. And so that's how that's how I look at, at this confluence of factors that might be involved in language anxiety. It really may shift from one person to another, but once anxiety becomes manifest, once you, you say, okay, I, I feel a lot of anxiety when I have to use my second language, from then on, the experience is very similar. So high anxiety in Japan is probably similar in its effects to high anxiety in Canada and similar to its effects in the southern U.S. speaking Spanish. So, yeah, it's, it's like the source of anxiety may differ, but once it's aroused and once you've got that high emotional investment, you know, then from then on, the, the, the stakes become quite similar, I, I would think. Well, yeah, and and there's an extra factor in Japan: the fear of negative evaluation, uh, the fear of negative evaluation from your peers, as far as speaking out in class. You know, are, is this person doing better? That there's this almost a, sort of a group think in Japan. You shouldn't really stick out. Um, for example, right. if you ask uh, a learner an answer, the person will look to their neighbors to confirm it's the right answer before they'll speak directly to you. So, so I, I see the fear of ne negative evaluation as a peer thing. And also related to test anxiety, where someone is is the fear of negative evaluation. My teacher is going to is going to judge me a certain way if I don't do this uh, correctly. My my peers are going to judge me a certain way if if I do this a certain way. So I can see why you've spent four decades. I mean, I've just kind of started to scratch the surface, and and it's just it's it's an and then you you add in silence in the in the classroom, and then you know what's that and what's that related to so. It is sort of, it, now that I'm getting into it, um, I can see how you can spend a career on this because there's, there's really, there's really a lot to look at and it's, it's a, it's a really fascinating, I can see why you have, you have continued to publish on this over four decades. It's, and talking to you now, you're still interested in it. You're still, you're still excited by it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating idea. The whole idea of emotion and how emotions work 
in human beings, uh, you know, there's almost no bottom to it. it. You can just keep studying it and and learning more and more about it. Um, you know, the uh, neuroscientist uh, Antonio Damasio, you know, he, he writes a whole book where he talks about how, you know, we're not thinking machines who can feel. We're feeling machines who can think. And when you look at emotion as the basis for our experience, you know, when, when you're a baby, right, you've got emotion experiences. Now, not everybody would define them that way because, you know, definitions and all. But if you look at a baby, when they're upset, they cry. When they're happy, they, they giggle. When they're tired, they go to sleep. They're, they're just, they're, it's almost like they live in an emotion world and then thinking is added as they grow up. So if you look at emotion as this sort of fluid base for all of our experience, then it's, it's absolutely shocking people haven't been studying it more and how it affects learning and education and interpersonal relations and ethnic relations and communication processes and, and all of that. I think when you ignore emotion, you're really missing a huge part of the human experience. All right. So you, you started to make a name for yourself in language learning anxiety, but if, if someone were to look at your Google Scholar and had never is just maybe starting out, on a on a uh, undergraduate or a master's or a PhD and say, oh, I'm interested in this. And they'll see that you publish extensively in willingness to communicate and in motivation. And so I guess the question is, you know, what, what happened? I mean, I, I, like what, do, because most, so people, <laughs> most people, most people stick to one lane, like Dornier is like motivation, right? And language learning anxiety is, is, uh, would be McIntyre, I would, I would think. And willingness to communicate would be, but then your name keeps popping up all all throughout. So, can you? Can you, you we were talking a little bit before we started recording. You said there's a story behind that, where you kind of started with language learning anxiety, and then then you mentioned someone named Kim Knowles. So, what what mm. kind of what what happened to sort of branch out to the like a what are you like a three head four headed monster of a yeah of a, I'm, I'm kind of like a rash on the computer right? <laughs> I just pop up everywhere. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Yeah. So, um, well, okay. I mentioned early on that, that uh, Gardner, one of his emphasis for his graduate students is, is to get research experience. Um, you know, every opportunity you get, take your research experience. And so Gardner is probably best known for motivation. I, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, so he was doing motivation studies, even as I was emphasizing anxiety in my graduate work. But Gardner's approach was, you know, if you want to be involved in this project, you know, have at it, make a contribution. And so early on, I was doing, you know, my language anxiety work for my degree, but doing motivation research for the publication experience. And so those two grew up. Uh, and then uh, I went to the University of Ottawa for, for a postdoc. And I remember very early on, it was probably in September of, of the first year of the postdoc, um, Kim Knowles, who was a PhD student at the time, and by the way, I would recommend her for an interview. She's she's fantastic. Um, so she was, you know, well on, uh, experienced in her PhD. So um, she was actually going down to the U.S. to visit our advisor who was on sabbatical. So she handed me a book as she was she was going. Um, it's called Communication, Cognition, and, and Anxiety. Um, it wasn't about second language. It was about native language. And so I'm flipping through, and here's some interesting papers, and I'm reading one. And then chapter, I think it was chapter three, by, was by McCroskey and Richmond. And it was on called Willingness to Communicate. I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. Let me read this. And so as I'm reading it, it's like, yes, this is it. They get it. 
they get it. Anxiety affects communication. This is why it's so important. This is why teachers need to take account of it. This is why learners need to know about it. It's because anxiety feeds into this idea that I don't want to speak, and speaking is the key to language. And so it's like it's just this aha moment where you think, yes, willingness to communicate is relevant. And the way that, that McCroskey and Richmond had presented it was very trait-like, and it was um, kind of almost like introversion, extroversion. Mm -hmm. They argued that th that personality trait feeds into a willingness, and that made sense, along with factors like communication, and apprehension, perceived competence, hello language, that's pretty relevant, mm -hmm. uh, but also cultural issues like anomie and alienation. And it's like, yeah, these, these researchers, they really get it. They get this idea that these things come together to affect communication. And so that was a very powerful chapter in my own experience, that McCroskey and Richmond chapter from 91. And it's like, wow, this, they, really, they really captured something, something relevant here. And so that started an interest in willingness to communicate. But because motivation and anxiety feed into willingness to communicate, you can't leave those behind. And then as we've been going through, you know, perceived competence is highly relevant as well. And so, you know, just sort of build all of these things together. And then at some point we discovered uh, dynamic systems and it just, you know, again, added a new layer, a whole new level of, of thinking to, uh, to what's going on. Can you talk a little bit about dynamic systems? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you don't mind a little, you know, segue into to willingness to communicate. Sure. So, okay. In, uh, so that was published in, what, 1998. So way back... Back when I was a postdoc, um, Zoltan Dornier was in Hungary. He was still working in Hungary at the time. And he invited Kim Knowles and I to come and visit Hungary uh, to Etvos University. And, you know, we would, I think we may have given a presentation. But Kim was a PhD and I was a postdoc, so we weren't experienced, right? And, and Zoltan was a very young faculty member. But he, he had ideas. He had visited Canada. He had talked to all of these prominent researchers in the area, and he had ambition, and so he brought us over and, you know, we had a week with him and it was fantastic to talk about these ideas and, and bounce ideas. We had this idea for, for this model that would put everything together with willingness to communicate at the top and, you know, all of the other factors contributing to it. And we decided to organize it by time. So the most situated and immediate factors would be near the top. The longer term or distal factors would be at the bottom. And we would organize this pyramid to argue that, you know, all of these factors may be relevant. And it was, we called it a heuristic model. Mm. Well, and then 10 years later, Larson Freeman and Cameron come out with their book on dynamic systems. And we hadn't realized it, but we've been talking about that in our pyramid model. It was, it was meant to be a dynamic model. Because we had never, we never sat down and tested all the factors in the pyramid model, you know, in one big study to create a regression equation that says yes, personality is five percent relevant and context is eight percent relevant, and all. we we never did that study because it never did seem to make sense. Mm -hmm. And it was because it was dynamic. We were saying, yeah, personality might be relevant, but then in other situations, not. Mm -hmm. And for some people, they might say, yeah, I'm shy. I don't ever want to to speak, not even in second language unless I'm talking about my favorite hobby. In that case, I'll talk your ear off. <laughs> and so it seemed to be like these influences, the importance of them may come and go. They may change and sometimes change very quickly. So this idea of dynamic systems really helped put the pieces of the puzzle together where we said, yeah, this is, 
this is kind of what we were talking about in that pyramid model of willingness, where we looked at how the different influences might come together and affect a moment in time. And that that pattern may change very quickly the next moment in time. You know, imagine if, if somebody says something insulting or controversial, the whole situation seems to change quickly. Mm. Your personality hasn't changed, your intergroup hasn't changed, your ethnic attitudes haven't changed, but something has changed, and it changes how those variables fit together to produce your willingness to communicate. So that's, that dynamic idea is, is I mean, it's not, um, it's not very old. It's, you know, 10 years old at most. But I think it has a very powerful way of explaining maybe some of the inconsistent findings in the literature, you know, why some correlations are positive and other times they're negative. Um, you really have to look at context. And that's become a very prominent feature in the anxiety literature is the effect of context on, on the process. And anxiety, um, we know it's dynamic. We know it rises and falls because it's an emotion. Um, so we've done studies on willingness to communicate. It rises and falls. Uh, but we wouldn't probably consider that one an emotion. So how do emotions figure into willingness? Um, how, do, how does a rise in anxiety affect willingness to communicate? Well, it's not straightforward. Sometimes you can be getting more and more anxious, but still willing to talk. Other times your willingness can go down. Um, but still, you have to keep communicating. So these idea of of dynamics and how things change beneath the surface seems to be a very powerful way of of getting at and capturing what's really happening for individuals who are learning and speaking a second language. I I really like the model that you made, and it does make sense that you you're you're calling it uh, d- dynamic because I in, in that model I, I re- I'm really struck by how many different factors affect interactional domains and d- different you know especially in the the communi- communicative language teaching classroom where you have a, a pair two people and then you have three or then you have four and uh, you do a presentation okay now teachers moving around and and all these things are are, are shifting and you were you were you were talking about this a long time i mean you you i mean this is this has been out there for a long time um but it's still it's still a big issue i mean especially in japan because a lot of these high school and junior high school students they're not used to the clt approach at all they're used to sitting down sit, sitting in the same seat sitting quietly for the most part and the teacher lecturing and so when they get to the university level there's all of these inter you know changing domains and and different things are happening all around them and they're they're just not used to it. So I think anyone would be anxious for something that's just a, a you know just such a big anxious or excited. You know that's kind of relating to my re- research. Some people might be excited by it, but some people might be anxious. So it's um, it, it's it's fast. But you, you you you've been writing about this for a very long time. This is nothing. This is nothing new, really. No, and and it really kind of goes back to how you know how I think. Because, you know, my, my undergraduate and graduate work was in the area of individual differences, um, which is kind of an ironic title because it very rarely looks at the individual. It's, it's always about relative positioning within a group. So, you know, if you do a correlation, it's all about who gets high scores on one variable and high scores in another within the group. You don't look at correlations at the individual level very mm-hmm. often. So individual differences kind of had this oxymoron quality to it. And... But one of the, the ideas that I've always been attracted to is, you know, why do, how do people differ from each other? You know, why do some people, you know, love situations that other people really don't, don't like? And how come some people excel in one situation, other people really fail in it? And so it makes sense that, that there are these individual differences and you have to account for those. 
Um, the question I think has been research tools. You know, how do we conceptualize it? And that's where dynamic systems I think helps a lot. And then there's a recent book on on you know measurement and research methods and complexity. And I think that's going to help a lot too, because if you don't have the research tools to get at it, mm. you know, how do you do the master's degree in it? How do you do the PhD research in it? How do you continue a career in it? Uh, but now with the research tools emerging quite quickly, um, I think you're going to see an explosion of interest in how complex systems can contribute to an understanding and that understanding be based on on research and, and evidence that, that comes from studies like this. But if you don't mind, can I put in a plug for individual level research? Please. Because much of our research has been done on groups, mm -hmm. right? This individual differences approach looks at, you know, who gets higher scores within a group and your sample is your group. So that's great. And but it it, it throws away so much information. Um, Gregerson and I did a, a study in I think published in 2014 called The Motion of Emotion. You had mentioned it earlier, mm -hmm. where we looked at individual, six individual language learners, three who were said that they were anxious and three who were non-anxious. And these these are all prospective language teachers. They were teacher trainees. They were becoming language teachers. And some of them were anxious about speaking and others not. You know, anybody who's becoming a teacher probably understands, you know, that that it's anxiety provoking to stand up in front of a group and and present in a language that may not be your native language, especially. Mm. Yeah. So but their behavior was so different um, from one individual to another. And that was the one that we had heart rate and their heart rates were so different. And the pattern of change over time was so different. It's like, this is really important not to throw away those individual differences as error, you know, because that's where it goes in an ANOVA or a correlation. It, it's in the error component. Mm -hmm. these, cha these, these changes you can't explain. Um, but if you try to diagnose them, you know, with any means necessary, qualitative, quantitative, whatever, if you can get at what's driving those changes, I think theory and research are going to improve over time. Well, I mean, that would fit with what I'm doing now. I, I have a sample size of nine. I, I finished the data collection just on three sessions. And taking a quick look at it, it is a bit, it does look a bit unique. I, I don't know how it's going to work out if we're just going to average them all out. Um, yeah. And, and when you average, you throw away. Right. You're throwing away information whenever you average. So that, but you have to average. That's, yeah. there's, there's no other way with dealing with all of that data, but to express it as an average or as a tendency. So, you know, we're, we're caught with our research tools and our, our statistical means of anal analyzing the data. Um, but physiological data is notoriously difficult because it's so complex. You know, heart rate, for example, if you're looking at heart rate as at how heart rate changes as you go along, um, there are physiological components to it. Um, if you don't mind another story. Sure. Tammy Gregerson actually came to visit Cape Breton, um, and she was giving a speech, uh, a talk at our university. And it was to, uh, education students came out, language students came out, our second language training institute. Um, so there was an audience of about 40 people. So some were already teachers, some were becoming teachers, some were still learners, really eclectic group. And she gave a fantastic talk. And I don't know if you've ever been to one of Tammy's talks, but she is energetic to say the least. <laughs> and so she's up at the front and she's, you know, just the crowd is with her. She's giving a good speech. Everybody's zoned in. And we had her hooked up to a heart rate monitor because we were doing the heart rate study. Hmm. And so she said, that was great. She enjoyed every minute of her talk. And if you look at her talk, her heart rate accelerated consistently across time. Hmm. So it went from, you know, around, let's say 70 or 80 beats a minute to 120 consistently at the end. And she said, but I wasn't feeling anxious. I was feeling really good. 
And you know what it was? She was moving. She was walking around. She mm. was using the big muscles of her body, and that increases your heart rate. If you're walking and talking and and you know gesturing and you know that increases your heart rate just because of the physical activity. It's not an emotional experience, but the heart rate goes up because of physiology. Yeah. And heart rate will come down because of physiology too, because you can't let the heart increase in speed forever. You know, it would it would just fail. So there are physiological constraints to how fast your heart can beat, and they kick in from the parasympathetic nervous system. So immediately as your heart rate starts to accelerate, the brakes start to be applied from another system, and those two systems coordinate the heart rate. It may have nothing to do with emotional or educational experience at the time. Well, yeah, I in in the study that I just did, I had them stay seated because I I, yeah. I read the paper and I thought, yeah, that's that that makes sense. Like, yeah, I told them they have to stay seated. Um, this was actually an interesting study that I did because I was I was planning to do it in the classroom, you know, but with everything going to COVID, uh, my initial ethics approval was going to be in the classroom, but then I had to change the ethics application and I was able to recruit uh, volunteers. And I set up a circle in like a big, a big classroom, you know, sit, you know, uh, socially distance, everyone's wearing masks and everything. And, and it was groups of two and everyone was sitting around a circle so everyone could see each other and they okay. could, they could look at each other and then they would do, um, they would do a performance. Um, and I did this over like th three sessions and we rotated pairs. So I'm interested to see what the results are. Um, but yeah, you have to be really careful. Uh, and yeah. this was only nine people. So it, it was still such a, such a hard thing to pull off. So I kind of, I kind of like what you said. I think the individual research needs to happen, but as far as if you're going to have a finding, you would need a really large sample size if you're going to do the averages. And then it's really hard to get a really large sample size with physiological measures. Right. But maybe yeah. with the, um, I mean, I mean, heartbeat, there's a possibility with the, the, the new advances in the wearable technology, but then you have a lot of people that, are, that criticize heart rate and they say, well, you need to triangulate that with uh, cortisol and you need to triangulate that with, um, with, with blood pressure. And you were, you were mentioning, um, not to make this all about me, but you were mentioning heart rate variability. Why, yeah. can, why is that important if you're, oh. if you're, if you're uh, considering heart rate? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so if you can imagine the EKG, right, those little bloops on the screen, like, you know, someone flatlines, they're dead. Uh, but then when they're not dead, they get these blips on the screen. So <laughs> when they're not take, dead. Yeah, when they're not dead. They're much more, much this, more agreeable to research when they're not dead. Is this why your doctor calls you interesting? You, yeah, I, th you I think it's, it's one of many reasons, Jonathan. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, if you were, let's say you, you pause the screen, so the, the blips are on the screen. If you were to measure one peak to another, with a ruler, that distance is actually a measure of time. That changes from one beat to another. Okay, so the distance is not consistent from one to it kind of may look consistent as you just look at it, mm -hmm. but it's not. There's always variability between when the heart pumps and when it rests. And that amount of variability is actually a measure of how much control the the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system have relatively speaking, how much control each has over the, the beat and the relaxation of the heart. So some of the phases of heart beating are controlled by sympathetic and some are controlled by parasympathetic. So when you look at, at the distance across those peaks, the more variable they are, the more the systems are coordinated and controlling. So the, the systems have better, if you like, better access to the heartbeat when you see more variability. Really? Because as you need it, it can accelerate it more quickly. As you need to slow it down, 
the system can slow it down. Interesting. And that's what produces the variability, right? This accelerate, slow it down, adjust, adapt, all of that is going on constantly. Uh, you know, and below your level of awareness, you're not controlling your heartbeat. It's controlled by your physiological systems. So that variability is an index of emotion control in some ways, because the more control you have, the more variability you can create. If you can't create variability, it means that you've got consistency. And that means that as you adapt to the situation, nothing inside your heartbeat is changing. And that's not adaptive because you need to accelerate the heart rate when you want to exercise and decelerate it when you want to relax. And that happens moment to moment. So when you look at heart rate variability, you're looking at the idea that, that the physiological systems can affect that distance between peaks. And so it can affect how fast and slow the heart beats on a continuous adaptive basis. And when you can get at that, then you get at a, a measure of, you know, healthy emotion adaptation. All right. So the the chapter we're talking about um, is an overview of language anxiety research and trends in its development. Again, the book is New Insights into Language Anxiety, Theory Research and Educational Implications. I, I'd like to kind of uh, end the interview with this. Something very interesting happened in the 90s where there was a back and forth between you and Sparks and Ganshaw in the Modern Language Journal. Um, and it was, it's kind of cool because you have, if you print them out, you know, you'll see an article and then you have, you have an article that says MLJ response article. And the mm -hmm. article you wrote was how does anxiety affect second language learning? A reply to Sparks and Ganshaw. Was this common back then, this MLJ response article, or is this something that is not very common? Um, in, in a sense, it was, it was, one of the things that the journal wanted to do at the time, um, the editor was Sally Seeloff-Magnon, and she she wanted this idea of academic debate in the pages of the journal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as editor, she was very much open to having these contrasting views next to each other inside the pages of an issue. And so she was the driving force behind creating these debates. And so um, now I, I'm not sure how the motivation one happened, whether she approached you know, Oxford and, and Gardner, or whether they approached her. I kind of think maybe the editor approached the authors in that case. Um, really? And then in the other case, when, when I sent in my paper to MLJ, um, the editor wrote back and, and she said, you know, this, this would be a, a candidate for this debate format that we have going. You know, if we had Sparks and Ganshaw write a reply to your paper, then we could have a conversation. It's like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. Let's do it. And so they agreed to do it. And that's how that, that debate happened in the pages of MLJ. Was this ever the sort of thing at a conference where you saw them sit down at the cafeteria and at the same table, then you got up and walked to the other side of the room? Was it, was it like a, an old Western kind of thing? <laughs> I just, yeah. I'm being dramatic. I just imagine there's Sparks and Ganshaw over there. It's like, oh, it's like, there's the line in the sand and, then, and everyone has yeah. to choose sides. Was it something? And the tumbleweed goes by yeah. <laughs> and the piano player stops. Yeah, yeah, I get the whole picture. It's great. Um, but no, I've actually never met them in person. Oh, really? Um, no, and it may be just that we travel to different conferences and whatnot. And, you know, as you mentioned, we're at the edge of the empire here in Cape Breton. So getting anywhere is, is a little bit of a challenge for me. So, um, yeah, I've not actually met them in person. I've corresponded with, with Richard Sparks over email a couple of times. 
Um, and you know, you know the anonymous review. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's reviewed some of my papers, and I reviewed some of theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's been a bit of back and forth. But you know, I'd love to sit down and 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 have a conversation. I don't think there'd be tumbleweeds, uh, and I don't think there'd be a, a an okay corral anywhere to be found. But I, I, it would be great to have a have a conversation like that. Because here's the idea of so Lost in Citations right now is a pod is a podcast where we have uh, three rotating interviewers, but. My idea of it is that this would become something like a, like an open forum. So, for example, if you wanted to interview someone, um, then then you could you could you could record it and then you could you could post it. So the idea is there's no one person who's sort of like like the, I didn't like the idea that I'm doing a podcast and then I'm sort of I'm sort of choosing who the guests are going to be and I I'm the arbiter of choice. Like something like that, that would be perfect. Like if you could sit down with those two for an interview and just talk about for, for an hour. I think people would like love to hear it. That, 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 that's kind of the concept. I don't know if it's going to take off. I hope, um, you know, with COVID there, people are more likely to, you know, to sit down and talk because they have more time and they're at home and stuff. Uh, but that would be cool. That would be so cool just to, to, to hear, uh, that back and forth. I, I would love to hear that. That'd be, that'd be really cool. Yeah. And, and if you want some of that, what, what I would do, is you know the next conference um, bring a tape recorder, put it on the table at the bar because when people <laughs> start having a couple of beer, <laughs> this is when you get these really good debates. Um, it's probably be a little bit more you know stodgy as you get uh, recording and it's going out over the internet. But if you want to hear people really talk about their theories and how they disagree with each other, you know go to the go to the pub, <laughs> find out uh, you know which table they're at, and then. Yeah, you'll get some real. That's where you get some really interesting de- debates, and you know, I, I think that's the whole purpose of conferences. To be honest, it's not the presentations; it's the it's the coffee breaks, it's the it's the dinners, it's the the uh, late night discussions after after work. Well, I'm hoping once the world goes back to normal at conferences, we can do some some live podcasts or or panel things, or you know, get the, get the, a side room conversation going, something like that. Um, that is the hope when when the world goes back to normal because. I think there these conversations are really interesting outside of the framework of a publication. You can learn so much more just talking to you today. Uh, it's it's easier for me to understand the concepts in the writing. It's just you get you can hear the person's voice. I mean, just hearing the voice yeah. I think is really cool. Um, yeah, I, I do. The, I exactly. I feel the same way. Um, I've got a, a online course in positive psychology, and so. Um, it's an asynchronous course, which means I can have videos from, you know, if we're talking about positive emotions, Barbara Fredrickson is my guest speaker for that week. If we're talking about optimism, Martin Seligman is my guest speaker. And so it's them talking about their own theory. And it's, it's so much more powerful to hear the person behind it because it's not some disembodied textual voice. It's, it's an actual person who's got experience and thoughts and, and, uh, you know, they, they fit together into a, a perspective and sometimes you don't get that in writing, but you can hear it kind of non-verbally. You can hear it sometimes in the way people talk about what they think. Well, yeah. And now when I read your, your articles, I can hear your voice. And, and same with, um, with, with Ali. When I, when I read his articles, I can, I can hear I, – I was telling you before the show, I just love his accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So maybe a couple plugs before we wrap this up. So um, I just wanted to mention the the journal that you're involved with, the Journal for the Psychology of Language Learning, um, and also the International Association for the Psychology of Language Learning. So those, so the journal is a part of that organization. Is that correct? 
Exactly. Um, the organization was founded just a few years ago, uh, 2018, so it's relatively new. Um, but the idea is that if you're interested in topics of how psychology and language go together, um, this is a, an emerging field. Uh, Multilingual Matters, the publishers, have a new series on the psychology of language learning. Um, Sarah Mercer and Stephen Ryan are the editors of the series. Are there 15, uh, 15, books? Are there 15 books in that series? Something like that? Yeah, that sounds that sounds correct. It's only a couple of years old. That's so, amazing. Yeah, they're they're both I mean, they're both amazing editors. So they're you know, and they've they've got connections to all of these authors who are working in the area. It, the time was right to establish that as a as a series. Um, in addition, the association has been established, and the psychology of language learning conferences are now happening every two years, except for COVID. Mm. So the field seems to be kind of coalescing and coming together. Uh, and I know there's a handbook being produced on the psychology of language. So, yeah, there's there's all kinds of things that are really developing in this area. And the, the nice thing about the association and the journal is that the association decided from the beginning that this would be an open access journal. Mm. And so the, the two issues that have been produced so far have really, really good authors um, and completely free for everybody to look at. So we're not involved in, you know, publishers uh, and charging money and all of that kind of stuff. So they're just free and open for anybody to, to take a look at. And I would encourage people to, to go to the website. It's iapple.com and uh, just take a look at, at that open access journal. It's, it's got some really good papers already in it and it's only two issues old. I will put that link in the show notes as well. And regarding the psychology of language learning and teaching, so your book that you uh, co-edited with Ali um, that's in that that's in that series. Uh, I'm just I'm just looking at the multilingual website now. Yeah, it looks like there's 15 books in the series, and the book that you edited with Ali, Contemporary Language Motivation Theory, 60 Years Since Gardner and Lambert. I'm going to be talking to him about that um, next month. So, did you win an award for this book? Oh, we did. Yeah, actually, and, and this was unprompted, folks. We didn't talk about this before, but yeah, um, the International Association for Language and Social Psychology—they've uh, created a book award uh, to honor their longtime book editor uh, Jake Harwood, who's recently retired. And uh, so, to honor honor Jake, they they put together an award, and we were the actual first recipients of it for the Contemporary Motivation book. Uh, so, Al, I know Ali was absolutely thrilled. Uh, and, and I was too, because I've been a member of that association for a long time. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a, so it was a nice honor. Um, and it was a nice to honor Bob Gardner as well, because he's been around a long time. And, you know, I know most people don't, don't get the chance to know him as a mentor like I did, but you could not ask for a better mentor, just a, just a good man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I might invite you to come back on again if you don't mind. You're such a you're such a legend in the field. I have to be honest. I think it's all downhill from here as far as the podcast goes. I don't really know. I mean, Elaine Horowitz. I that's you about my career. <laughs> no, no, for this, I mean, I don't know. As far as like setting a goal for who I would want to get on the show, I for me, I mean, I guess that's why I'm trying to extend this to, to multiple interviewers. But as far as my focus, um, there's there's really no one else I'd, I'd rather talk to. So, um, it's I'll tell you what, when you become rich and famous for your heart rate studies, I'll interview you. Oh, that, that, that would, that would be great. I, because I actually I'm really interested in what you're going to find because I, I know you're going to have a lot of messy data, Yep. but if you can figure it out, I think you'll, you'll have something very interesting there in the, in the setup that you've got for your research. Well, I, um, 
I'll, I'll, I'll keep in touch, keep you posted. But um, anyway, well, thank you so much for coming on, on Lost in Citations and uh, have a great day out there in Nova Scotia. Great. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Thanks for the interview. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.